Welcome to the Dead Author Society. Frank Herbert, February 11th, 1986. Rest in peace. God Emperor of Dune. Chapter 2. A bit of both. You might even call it a textbook. Does it bother you that you took these volumes? Leto allowed himself a soft smile, which Idaho accepted as a negative answer. A momentary tension rippled through Leto's body then, as Idaho reached into the slim case. Would it be the weapon or the reports? Although the core of his body possessed a powerful resistance to heat, Leto knew that some of his flesh was vulnerable to laser guns, especially the face. Idaho brought a report from his case, and even before he began reading from it, the signals were obvious to Leto. Ido was seeking answers, not providing information. Ido wanted justification for a course of action already chosen. We have discovered a cult of Valia on Gayday Prime, Ido said. Leto remained silent while Idaho recounted the details. How boring. Leto let his thoughts wander. The worshippers of his father's long-dead sister served these days only to provide occasional amusement. Duncans predictably saw such activity as a kind of underground threat. Ido finished reading. His agents were thorough, no denying it. Boringly thorough. This is nothing more than a rival of Isis, Leto said. My priests and my priestesses will have some sort of suppressing this cult and its followers. Ido shook his head, as though responding to a voice within it. The Bene Gesserit knew about the cult, he said. Now that interested Leto. The Sisterhood has never forgiven me for taking their breeding program away from them, he said. This has nothing to do with breeding. Leto concealed mild amusement. The Duncans always so sensitive on the subject of breathing, although some of them occasionally stood at stud. I see, Leto said. Well, the Bene Gesserits are all more than a little insane, but madness represents a chaotic reservoir of surprises. Some surprises can be valuable. I fail to see any value in this. Do you think the Sisterhood was behind this cult? Leto asked. I do. Explain. They had a shrine. They called it the Shrine of the Chris Knife. Did they now? And their chief priestess was called the Keeper of Jessica's Light. Does that suggest anything? It's lovely. Leto did not try to conceal his amusement. What is lovely about it? They unite my grandmother, my aunt, 
into a single goddess. Ido shook his head slowly from side to side, not understanding. Leto permitted himself a small internal pause, less than a blink. The grandmother within did not particularly care for this gay day prime cult. He was required to wall off her memories and her identity. What do you suppose was the purpose of this cult? Leto asked. Obvious. A competing religion to undermine your authority. That's too simple. Whatever else they may be, the Bene Gesserits are not simpletons. Idaho waited for an explanation. They want more spice, Leto said. More reverend mothers. So they annoy you until you buy them off. I'm disappointed in you, Duncan. Ido merely stared up at Leto, who contrived a sigh. <sighs> a complicated gesture no longer intrinsic to his new form. The Dungans usually were brighter, but Leto supposed that this one's plot had clouded his alertness. They chose Gede Prime as their home, Leto said. What does that suggest? It was a Harkonnen? Stronghold with that ancient history. Your sister died there, a victim of the Harkonnens. It is right that the Harkonnens and Gade Prime be united in your thoughts. Why did you not mention this earlier? I did not think it was important. Leto drew his mouth into a tight line. The reference to his sister it troubled the Duncan. The man knew intellectually that he was only the latest in a long line of fleshy rivals, all products of the Tilalaxuex laudal tanks, and taken from the original cells at that. The Duncan could not escape his revived memories. He knew that the Atreides had rescued him from Harkonnen bondage. And whatever else I may be, Leto thought, I am still Atreides. What are you trying to say? Idaho demanded. Leto decided that a shout was required. He let it be a loud one. The Harkonnens were spice hoarders. Idaho recoiled a full step. Leto continued in a lower voice. There's an undiscovered melange horde on Gay Day Prime. The sisterhood was trying to winkle it out with their religious tricks as a cover. Idaho was abashed. Once it was spoken, the answer appeared obvious. And I missed it, he thought. Leto's shout had taken him back into his role as commander of the Royal Guard. Idaho knew about the economics of the Empire, simplified in the extreme. No interest charges permitted. Cash on the barrel head. The only coinage bore a likeness of Leto's cowled face. The God Emperor. But it was all based on the spice. A substance whose value, though enormous, kept increasing. A man could carry the price of an entire planet in his hand luggage. 
control the coinage and the courts, give the rabble have the rest. Leto thought, old Jacob Broom said it, and Leto could hear the old man chortling within. Things haven't changed all that much, Jacob. Idaho took a deep breath. The Bureau of the Faith should be notified immediately. Leto remained silent, taking this as a cue to continue. Ido went on with his reports, but Leto listened with only a fraction of his awareness. It was like a monitoring circuit, which only recorded Idaho's words and actions, with but an occasional intensification for an internal comment. And now, he wants to talk about the Telalaksu. That is dangerous ground for you, Duncan. But this opened up a new avenue for Leto's reflection. The Wiley Telalaxu still produced my Duncans from the original cells. They do a religiously forbidden thing, and we both know it. I do not permit the artificial manipulation of human genetics, but the Telalaxu have learned how I treasure the Duncans as the commanders of my guard. I do not think they suspect the amusement value in this. It amuses me that a river now bears the name Idaho where once I was a mountain. That mountain no longer exists. We brought it down to get material for the high walls which girdle my surreal. Of course, the Tillalaxu know that I occasionally breed the Duncans back into my own program. The Duncans represent mongrel strength and much more. Every fire must have its damper. It was my intent to breed this one with Siona, but that may not be possible now. Huh. He says he wants me to crack down on the Tillalaxu. Why will he not ask it straight out? Are you preparing to replace me? I'm tempted to tell. Once more, Idaho's hand went into the slender pouch. Leto's introspective monitoring did not miss a beat. Blaze gun or more reports. It is more reports. The Duncan remains wary. He wants not only the assurance that I am not ignorant his intent, but more proofs that I am unworthy of his loyalty. He hesitates in a prolonged fashion. He always has. I've told him enough times that I will not use my prescience to predict the moment of my exit from this ancient form, but he doubts. He always was a doubter. His cavernous chamber drinks up his voice and were it not for my sensitivity, the dankness here would mask the chemical evidence of his fears. I fade his voice out of immediate awareness. What a bore this Duncan has become. He is recounting the history, the history of Siona's rebellion, 
no doubt leading up to personal admonitions about her latest escapade. It's not an ordinary rebellion, he says. That brings me back, fool. All rebellions are ordinary and an ultimate bore. They are copied out of the same pattern, one much like another. The driving force is adrenaline addiction, the desire to gain personal power. All rebels are closet aristocrats. That's why I can convey them so easily. Why do the Duncans never really hear me when I tell them about this? I have had the argument with this very Duncan. It was one of our earliest confrontations and right here in the crypt. The art of government requires that you never give up the initiative to radical elements. He said, How pedantic. Radicals crop up in every generation and you must not try to prevent this. That's what he means by give up the initiative. He wants to crush them, suppress them, control them, prevent them. He is living proof that there is little difference between the police mind and the military mind. I told him, Radicals are only to be feared when you try to suppress them. You must demonstrate that you will use the best of what they offer. They are dangerous. They are dangerous. He thinks that by repeating, he creates some kind of truth. Slowly, step by step, I led him through my method, and he even gives the appearance of listening. This is your weakness, Duncan. Radicals always see matters in terms which are too simple, black and white, good and evil, them and us. By addressing complex matters in that way, they rip open a passage for chaos. The art of government, as you call it, is the mastery of chaos. No one can deal with every surprise. Surprise? Who's talking about surprise? Chaos is no surprise. It has predictable characteristics, for one thing. It carries away order and strengthens the forces at the extremes. Isn't that what radicals are trying to do? Aren't they trying to shake things up so they can grab control? That's what they think they're doing. Actually, they're creating new extremists, new radicals, and they are continuing the old process. What about a radical? who sees the complexities and comes at you that way. That's no radical. That's a rival for leadership. But what do you do? You co-opt them or kill them. That's how the struggle for leadership originated, at the grunt level. Yes, but what about messiahs? Like my father. Duncan does not like this question. He knows that, in a very special way, I am my father. He knows I can speak with my father's voice and persona, that the memories are precise, never edited, and inescapable. Reluctantly, he says, Well, if you want. Duncan, I am 
all of them, and I know there has never been a truly selfless rebel, just hypocrites. Conscious hypocrites or unconscious hypocrites, it's all the same. That stirs up a small hornet's nest among my ancestral memories. Some of them have never given up the belief that they and they alone held the key to all of humankind's problems well in that they are like me. I can sympathize even while I tell them that failure is its own demonstration. I am forced to block them off, though. There is no sense dwelling on them. They are now little more than poignant reminders, as is the Stungan who stands in front of me with his blaze gun. Great gods below, he has caught me napping. He has the laser gun in his hand, and it is pointed at my face. You, Duncan, have you betrayed me too? Etu Brute. Every fiber of Leto's awareness came to full alert. He could feel his body twitching. The wormed flesh had a will of its own. Ida spoke with derision. Tell me, Leto, how many times must I pay the debt of loyalty? Leto recognized the inner question. How many of me have there been? The Duncans always wanted to know this. Every Duncan asked it, and no answer satisfied. They doubted. In his saddest, small, deep voice, Lido asked, Do you take no pride in my admiration, Duncan? Haven't you ever wondered what it is about you that makes me desire you as my constant companion through the centuries? You know me to be the ultimate fool. Duncan. The voice of an angry Maldib could always be counted on to shatter Idaho, despite the fact that Idaho knew no Bene Gesserit had ever mastered the powers of the voice as Leto had mastered them. It was predictable that he would dance to this one voice. Blaze gun wavered in his hand. was enough. Leto was off the cart in a hurtling royal. Ido had never seen him leave the cart this way, and not even suspected it would happen for Leto. There were only two requirements. A real threat, which the warm body could sense, and the release of that body. The rest was automatic, and the speed of it always astonished even Leto. The Lay's gun was his major concern. It could scratch him badly, but few understood the abilities of the pre-worm body to deal with heat. Leto struck Idaho while rolling, and the Lay's gun was deflected and it was fired. One of the useless flippers, which had been Leto's legs and feet, sent a shocking burst of sensations crashing into his awareness. For an instant, there was only pain, but the worm body was free to act, and reflexes ignited a violent paroxysm of flopping, 
Leto heard bones cracking. The lay's gun was thrown far across the floor of the crypt by a spasmodic jerk of Idaho's hand. Rolling off of Idaho, Leto poised himself for a renewed attack, but there was no need. The injured flipper still sent pain signals. He sensed that the tip of the flipper had been burned away. The sand trout skin already sealed the wound. The pain had eased to an ugly throbbing. Ido stirred. There could be little doubt that he had been mortally injured. His chest was visibly crushed. There was obvious agony when he tried to breathe, but he opened his eyes and stared up at Leto. The persistence of these mortal possessions, Leto thought. Siana! Ido gasped. Leto saw life leave him then. Interesting, Leto thought. Is it possible that this Duncan and Siana... No. This Duncan always displayed a true sneering disdain for Siana's foolishness. Leto climbed back onto the royal cart. It had been a close one. There could be little doubt that the Duncan had been aiming for the brain. Leto was always aware that his hands and feet were vulnerable, but he had allowed no one to learn that what had once been his brain was no longer directly associated with his face. It's not even a brain of human dimensions anymore, but had spread in nodal conjuries throughout his body. He had told this to no one but his journals. Oh, the landscapes I have seen, and the people, the far wanderings of the Fremen, and all the rest of it. Even back through the myths to Terra, oh, the lessons in astronomy and intrigue, and the migrations and disheveled flights, the leg-aching and lung-aching runs so many nights on all of those cosmic specks where we have defended our transient possession. I tell you, we are a marvel, and my memories leave no doubt of this. The Stolen Journals The woman working at the small wall desk was too big for the narrow chair on which she perched. Outside, it was mid-morning, but in this windowless room, deep beneath the city of On, there was but a single glow-globe high in a corner. It had been tuned to warm yellow, but the light failed to dispel the gray utility of the small room. Walls and ceiling were covered by identical rectangular panels of dull gray metal. There was only one other piece of furniture, a narrow cot with a thin pallet covered by a featureless gray blanket. It was obvious that neither piece of furniture had been designed for the occupant. She wore a one-piece pajama suit of dark blue, which stretched tightly across her white shoulders as she hunched over the desk. The glow globe illuminated closely cropped blonde hair and the right side of her face, emphasizing the square block of jaw the jaw moved with silent words as her thick fingers carefully depressed the keys of a thin keyboard on the desk. 
She handled the machine with a deference which had originated as awe and moved reluctantly into fearsome excitement. Long familiarity with the machine had eliminated neither emotion. As she wrote, words appeared on a screen concealed within the wall rectangle exposed by the downward folding of the desk. Siona continues actions which predict violence attack on your holy person. She wrote, Siona remains unswerving in her avowed purpose. She told me today that she will give copies of the stolen books to groups whose loyalty to you cannot be trusted. The name recipients are the Bene Gesserit, the Guild, and the Ixians. She says the books contain your enciphered words, and by this gift, she seeks help in translating your holy words. Lord, I do not know what great revelations may be concealed on those pages, but if they contain anything of threat to your holy person, I beg you to relieve me from my vow obedience to Siona. I do not understand why you made me take this vow, but I fear it. I will remain your worshipful servant, Nayla. The chair creaked as Nayla sat back and thought about her words. The room fell into the almost soundless withdrawal of thick insulation. There was only Nayla's faint breathing, and a distant throbbing of machinery felt more in the floor than the air. Nayla stared at her message on the screen, destined only for the eyes of the God Emperor, required more than holy truthfulness. It demanded a deep candor, which she found draining. Presently, she nodded and pressed the key, which would encode the words and prepare them for transmission. Bowing her head, she prayed silently before concealing the desk within the wall. These actions she knew transmitted the message. God himself had implanted a physical device within her head, swearing her to secrecy and warning her that there might come a time when he would speak to her through the thing within her skull. He had never done this. She suspected that Ixians had fashioned the device, had possessed some of their look, but God himself had done this thing, and she could ignore the suspicion that there might be a computer within it, that it might be prohibited by the Great Convention. Make no device in the likeness of the mind. Ayla shuddered. She stood then and moved her chair to its regular position beside the cot. Her heavy muscular body strained against the thin blue garment. There was a steady deliberation about her. The actions of someone constantly adjusting to great physical strength. She turned at the cot and studied the place where the desk had been. There was only a rectangular gray panel like all the others. 
No bit of lint, no strand of hair, nothing caught there to reveal the panel's secret. <sighs> Nayla took a deep restorative breath and led herself out of the room's only door into a grey passage dimly lighted by widely spaced white glow globes. Machinery sounds were louder here. She turned left, and a few minutes later was with Sienna in a somewhat larger room, a table at its center upon which things stolen from the citadel had been arranged. Two silvery glow globes illuminated the scene. Siona seated at the table with an assistant named Topri standing beside her. Nayla nurtured grudging admiration for Siona, but Topri, there was a man worthy of nothing except active dislike. He was a nervous fat man with bulging green eyes, a pug nose and thin lips above a dimpled chin. Topri squeaked when he spoke. Look here, Nayla. Look what Siona has found pressed between the pages of these two books. Nayla closed and locked the room's single door. You talk too much, Topri, Nayla said. You're a blurter. How could you know if I was alone in the passage? Topri paled. An angry scowl settled onto his face. I'm afraid she's right, Siona said. What made you think I wanted Nayla to know about my discovery? You trust her with everything. Siona turned her attention to Nayla. Do you know why I trust you, Nayla? The question was asked in a flat, unemotional voice. Nayla put down a sudden surge of fear. Had Siona discovered a secret? Have I failed, my lord? Have you no response to my question? Siona asked. Have I ever given you cause to do otherwise? Nayla asked. That's not a sufficient cause for trust, Siona said. There's no such thing as perfection, not in human or machine. Then why do you trust me? Your words and your actions always agree. It's a marvelous quality, for instance. You don't like Topri, and you never try to conceal your dislike. Nayla glanced at Topri, <clears throat> who cleared his throat. I don't trust him, Nayla said. The words popped into her mind and out of her mind without reflection. Only after she had spoken did Nayla realize the true core of her dislike. Topri would betray anyone for personal gain. Has he found me out? Still scowling, Topri said, I'm not going to stand here and accept your abuse. He started to leave, but Siona held up a restraining hand. Topri hesitated. Although we speak the old feminine words and swear our loyalty to each other, that is not what holds us together, Siona said. Everything is based on performance. That is all I measure. Do you understand? 
both of you? Topri nodded automatically, but Nayla shook her head from side to side. Sianna smiled up at her. You don't always agree with my decisions, do you, Nayla? No. The word was forced from her. And you have never tried to conceal your disagreement, yet you always obey me. Why? That is what I have sworn to do. But I have said this is not enough. Nayla knew she was perspiring, knew this was revealing, but she could not move. What am I to do? I swore to God that I would obey Siana, but I cannot tell her this. You must answer my question, Siana said. I command it. <sighs> Nayla caught her breath. This was the dilemma she had most feared. There was no way out. She said a silent prayer and spoke in a low voice. I have sworn to God that I will obey you. Siona clapped her hands in glee and laughed. <laughs> I knew it. Topri chuckled. <laughs> Shut up, Topri. Siona said, I'm trying to teach you a lesson. You don't believe in anything, not even in yourself. But I... Be still, I say. Nayla believes. I believe. This is what holds us together, belief. Topri was astonished. Belief? You believe in... Not in the God Emperor, you fool. We believe that a higher power will settle with the tyrant worm. We are that higher power. <sighs> Nayla took a trembling breath. It's all right, Nayla. Siona said, I don't care where you draw your strength, just as long as you believe. Nayla managed to smile, then grinned. She had never been more profoundly stirred by the wisdom of her lord. I may speak the truth, and it works only for my god. Let me show you what I've found in these books, Siana said. She gestured at some sheets of ordinary paper on the table, pressed between the pages. Nayla stepped around the table and looked down at it. First, there's this. Siana held up an object which Nayla had not noticed. It was a thin strand of something and what appeared to be a... A flower? Nayla asked. This was between two pages of paper. On the paper was written this. Siana leaned over the table and read, A strand of Ganima's hair with a star flower blossom which she once brought me. Looking up at Nayla, Siona said, Our God Emperor is revealed as a sentimentalist. That is a weakness I had not expected. Ganima? Nayla asked. His sister, remember your oral history. Oh. Oh, yes. The prayer to Ganima. Now listen to this. Siana took up another sheet of paper and read from it. 
the sand beach, as gray as a dead cheek, a green tide flow reacts cloud ripples. I stand on the dark wet edge, cold foam cleanses my toes, I smell driftwood smoke. Again, Sianna looked up at Nayla. This is identified as words I wrote when told of Ghani's death. What do you think of that? He... He loved his sister. Yes. He's capable of love, oh yes. We have him now. Sometimes I indulge myself in safaris, which no other being may take. I strike inward along the axis of my memories, like a schoolchild reporting on a vacation trip. I take up my subject, let it be female intellectuals. I course backward into the ocean which is my ancestors. I am a great winged fish in the depths. The mouth of my awareness opens and I scoop them up, sometimes. Sometimes I hunt out specific persons recorded in our histories. What a private joy to relive the life of such a one while I mock the academic pretensions which supposedly formed a biography. The Stolen Journals Moneo descended to the crypt with sad resignation. There was no escaping the duties required of him now. The God Emperor required a small passage of time to grieve the loss of another Duncan. But then, life went on. And on. And on. The lift slid silently downward with its superb Ixian dependability. Once, just once, the God Emperor had cried out to his Majordomo. Moneo, sometimes I think you were made by the Ixians. Moneo felt the lift stop. The door opened and he looked out across the crypt at the shadowy bulk on the royal cart. There was no indication that Leto had noticed the arrival. <sighs> Moneo sighed and began the long walk through the echoing gloom. There was a body on the floor near the cart. No need for deja vu. This was merely familiar. Once, in Meneo's early days of service, Leto had said, You don't like this place, Meneo. I can see that. No, Lord. With just a little prodding of memory, Meneo could hear his own voice in that naive past, and the voice of the God Emperor responding, you don't think of a mausoleum as a comforting place, Maneo. I find it as a source of infinite strength. Maneo remembered that he had been anxious to get off this topic. Yes, Lord. Leto had persisted. There are only a few of my ancestors here. The water of Maudib is here. Ghani and Harkalada are here, of course. But they're not my ancestors. No, if there's... Any true crypts of my ancestors, I am that crypt. This is mostly the Duncans, and the products of my breeding program. You'll be here someday. 
Ineo found that these memories slowed his pace. He sighed and moved a bit faster. Leto could be violently impatient on occasion, but there was no sign from him. Ineo did not take this to mean that his approach went unobserved. Leto lay with his eyes closed and only his other senses to record Mineo's progress across the crypt. Thoughts of Siana had been occupying Leto's attention. Siana is my ardent enemy, he thought. I do not need Nayla's words to confirm this. Siana is a woman of action. She lives on the surface of enormous energies, which filled me with fantasies of delight. I cannot contemplate those living energies without a feeling of ecstasy. They are my reason for being, the justification for everything I have ever done. Even for the corpse of this foolish Duncan in front of me now, Lido's ears told him that Moneo had not yet crossed half the distance to the royal cart. The man moved slower and slower, then picked up his pace. What a gift Moneo has given me and this daughter, Lido thought. Siana is fresh and precious. She is the new, while I am a collection of the obsolete, a relic of the damned, of the lost and strayed. I am the waylaid pieces of history, which sank out of sight in all of our pasts. Such an accumulation of riffraff has never before been imagined. Leto paraded the past within him, then, to let them observe what he had happened in the crypt. The minutiae are mine. Siona, though. Siona was like a clean slate upon which great things might yet be written. I guard that slate with infinite care. I'm preparing it. Cleansing it. What did the Duncan mean when he called out her name? Moneo approached the cart diffidently, yet consummately aware. Surely, Leto did not sleep. Thanks for listening to the Dead Author Society. Be sure to follow for more content posted several times a month.